some, people, some of you I knew you were going to come and others it's a surprise to see you, a very nice surprise. Um, a very special surprise <laughs> sitting over there. Never seen you in the Buddhist Centre before. Very good to see you. Thanks for coming. Uh, three or four people today must have asked me uh, if I'm looking forward to this evening and I've said, mm, not really. And uh, I didn't really know why. If I was just coming to give a talk, I'd really look forward to it. I always enjoy teaching the Dhamma, but launching my own book felt a bit funny somehow. Um, until uh, someone at lunchtime said, uh, well, it's a celebration, isn't it? And I thought, oh, yeah, I could see it like that. Because I'd been seeing it like, you know, famous authors, Ian McEwan and so on, going to Waterstones. And what they're trying to do is drum up business and sell their books, of course. And I was thinking, oh, I'm going to have to do that in a small way. But actually, I don't feel I have to. I'm just very pleased uh, to see you all. Um, So The Art of Reflection. Uh, It came about, the, the book came about because... Um, in the first instance anyway, somebody asked me to write something for a, a study um, course on reflection. And so I wrote six essays for this study course. It was a module of six weeks, so I wrote six essays. And uh, I must say I really, really enjoyed writing them. And um, I got some pretty good feedback from the two readers um, And so I thought, oh, maybe I can write, because I had no idea whether I could write good English before I wrote those essays. But it seemed from the feedback I got from the two readers that I could. And then um, Windhorse Publications must have found out about these essays, and they contacted me and asked me if I'd like to extend them into a book. So after a little thinking about it, into and froing, and I said, yeah, I would do that. Uh, so that's the immediate reason for writing the book. But um, there's another reason, I suppose, which is uh, why was I asked to write these essays in the first place and then the book? It's because thinking back over my life in the Order, which is about 35 years now, decades, mm-hmm. um, I, there have been some practices that I've been taught that I've gotten quite yeah. well with and other practices which I've really struggled with. Meditation, I would say, is a practice that I've struggled with over the years. I'm not a natural meditator. I find it quite difficult. I mean, I've been very uh, faithful. I've been meditating most days, apart from the two years when I had a Buddhist midlife crisis and I left the movement and went to work in the Inland Revenue in Wrexham. Apart from those two years, I've been very faithful in my Uh, meditation but I wouldn't say it's the main thing it's not something that really um, engages me very strongly but reflection is and um, I have to say that I would like to thank Sangharakshita, Ergyen Sangharakshita for introducing me to reflecting by which I mean thinking considering, pondering Uh, meditating on a topic rather than, say, on the breath, but really thinking something through, and um, he does that. And I've been very, very inspired by that, and I remember the first time I really began to think about something for myself. It was in 1981 in Tuscany, and I retreat in Tuscany with him, and I was in a very small discussion group. I think there were five or six of us, and we'd go to him. I can't remember how many times in a week, but a number of times we saw him and 
he got us to read something and then we came back with questions and uh, I found that very, very stimulating and I realised that the arts of asking a question is a difficult thing um, when you have to ask a question which is something meaningful, you know, it's quite a difficult thing to do and, but I, I found I could do it and I found that very encouraging and uh, how old was I then? 1981 uh, can't remember, early 20s, I think. And um, was it Elliot? Who cares? I was younger, much younger than I am now. And I, um, uh, I remember getting very excited about that and thinking, oh, I can think. I can think. Um, I was a very bad pupil at school, uh, and I was uh, expelled from college uh, when I was 16 or 17. So I came away from all that thinking... I'm not really good up here, you know, I can't really think, I'm not really a a very brainy person. But actually, um, I began to realise I could think, and that became, I would say, the cutting edge of my practice. So I think for the first maybe ten years of my life in the order uh, and in the movement, uh, I concentrated on the first level of wisdom, which is sutta maya panya, uh, wisdom through hearing, or, nowadays, wisdom through reading as well, wisdom f- uh, from, through learning from another person. I really imbibed the Dharma, especially Sangharakshita. I really just read a lot, uh, read his seminars, uh, read his books, listened to his lectures on uh, tapes, as they were then. And I did lots and lots of that. And then I would say for the past 20 or 25 years, I've been practicing, my main practice, I would say, has been reflecting on the Dharma, thinking about it. And uh, some people think I've read a lot of books, and I haven't actually. Not for the last 20 years. I've hardly read any Dharma books at all. Um, Read lots of novels, but hardly any Dharma books. Every now and then I'll read a Dharma book, or half a Dharma book, or a third of a Dharma book, depending on how interesting or not I find it. But uh, I've been really um, thinking quite a bit about the Dharma, and I suppose that's how it came to be that I was asked to write these essays and then this book and then the third level of wisdom I haven't quite got round to yet Uh, the third level of wisdom is Bhavana Maya Panya and that is wisdom through meditating and funnily enough um, I feel that I'm just about to embark on that one at least something's happened because once I finished writing the book which was an effort I must say it was a very um, enjoyable absorbing effort but it was an effort it took up a lot of my spare time so when I finished it when my editor, Vijay Devi, said, OK, it's all done. I was, I was like, oh, fantastic. I can do other things in my free time. And uh, I haven't really done much reflecting ever since, to be honest, which is a bit unfortunate because now I'm known as someone who's written a book, or, or I will be known, <laughs> and I'm being asked to go around the place and do reflection workshops and so on, and actually I'm not that into it at the moment. <laughs> And I do feel that it's really high time that I got onto the third level of wisdom, uh, which is wisdom through uh, uh, what I call contemplation as opposed to reflection. I make a difference between reflection, which I think of as kind of discursive thinking, and contemplation, which I think of as holding a topic in one's mind, but without really thinking about it, just holding it there and letting it affect you. So... I think probably it's about time I got onto that part. So what we're going to do this evening is I'm going to read two sections of my book, small sections, um, 
maybe three. Uh, and uh, after each section, we, it kind of introduces uh, um, a reflection exercise. The, the book, I have to say, is very much a how-to book. Um, it's not really a history of reflection or anything like that. It's a how to go about it. And um, I never thought of it when I was writing. It was only when I finished. I thought, do you know, I have never come across any book, modern or ancient, which describes how to reflect, even though the three levels of wisdom in Buddhism are very, very well known. But if you ever, ever come across a book that tells you how to practice a second level of wisdom reflection, I'm sure you haven't, because I don't know of any at all. But I don't even know of any texts which tell you how to go about it. And maybe it's obvious. Maybe it's obvious. You just think about something. But um, it struck me over the years as I've been teaching people, and pe- uh, the people I teach, very often very interested in reflecting. But a number of things prevent them from doing it. Uh, one is time. I'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, they haven't got enough time to reflect, or they think they haven't. They tell themselves they haven't. The other is um, they don't quite know how to go about it. And the third one is they don't feel confident enough to reflect. And what I try to do in my book is to overcome those three obstacles. Um, so the first one, I'm going to read put my glasses on. I don't really need them, but they make me look intellectual. <laughs> so you'll take me a bit more seriously, perhaps. So this is from the first chapter, and it's a section called Getting Started on Reflection. I want to conclude this chapter by suggesting ways you might get started on learning how to reflect. First of all, you have to learn to do nothing. This is absolutely essential. By doing nothing, I don't mean watching the TV, listening to the radio, or reading the newspaper. I don't even mean reading a good book, not even a Buddhist one. I mean literally doing nothing. Make time to do nothing. Oh, uh, doing nothing. And turn off your mobile phone and computer. Make time to do nothing every day. Perhaps start with 10 minutes a day. Then, once you get used to that, extend it to 20, 30 minutes, even an hour. Make time, or it probably won't happen. Put it in your diary. Sometimes when I'm trying to arrange a meeting with someone, or if I'm asked to do something at a certain time, I'll look at my diary and see that I'm doing nothing at that time. So I'll say, sorry, I'm unavailable then. They might then ask me what I'm doing, and I'll say, nothing. (laughs) Incomprehension. So, you can meet me then? No. But you said you weren't doing anything then? No. I said I was doing nothing. (laughs) My friends have got used to this, but I have to explain to people who don't know me very well that doing nothing is an important activity that I'm not willing to give up easily. We can't reflect in a hurry. We need to feel that we have all the time in the world because deeper understanding happens in its own time. If we want to learn how to reflect, we first need to learn how to do nothing. I'll take these off because I can't (laughs) see. 
We first have to learn how to do nothing because it's out of the spaciousness of doing nothing that our minds can open out. This spaciousness allows our mind to range freely and unhurriedly around and through whatever it is that we've chosen to consider. We need to have a sense of timelessness. I don't mean that we enter into the infinite, although we may do, but that we feel that we have all the time in the world, that there is nothing for us to do, that it's okay to do nothing, to achieve nothing. You might think that you don't have the time for this, and if that's the case, it might be a good thing to take a look at your life to see if there's anything that you can cut out of it. Because having time to do nothing is important. However, entering into the timeless realm doesn't necessarily require a lot of time. Timeless doesn't mean lots of time. We need to feel that we have all the time in the world, even though we may not, because of course we never do. We enter the timeless realm when we give up looking for results when we stop trying to meet targets and deadlines, when we cease to think of time as a commodity. If we've only got 10 minutes to spare, we can enter into the timeless realm, as long as we don't try to fill up that time with something useful. Reflection is not useful. To reflect, we need to feel free. We need to feel that it's okay to be totally useless. Many people find it very difficult to do nothing. They get jumpy, they fall asleep, they feel guilty, or have an uneasy feeling that they should be doing something. If you feel this way, I suggest making a cup of tea. Okay, making a cup of tea is not doing nothing exactly, but tea, I find, is very conducive to reflection. Look at the cup, at the liquid, the steam rising from the cup, the reflections on the surface of the tea. Feel the heat of the cup on your hands. Taste the tea. We're so accustomed to the the idea that we should always be doing something useful that we often continue with our activity while we're drinking our tea. Or we use the 10 minutes of our tea break to do something else, something useful. What a terrible habit. Try being useless instead, at least for a few minutes. Look at something, a vase of flowers, a plant, the view out of your window, your feet. Listen to sounds. As you sit doing nothing, thoughts will occur to you. Notice what things you think about. You can learn a lot about yourself that way. Do you think about cars, food, sex, football, the X Factor, films, music, theatre, philosophy, other people, yourself, the Dharma, or what? Remember what the Buddha said. You may not remember this because you may never have heard it before, but I mentioned it a couple of pages ago, so the reader will remember, hopefully. Whatever you frequently think and ponder upon, that will become the inclination of your mind. 
I'll say that again, that's good, isn't it? Whatever you frequently think and ponder upon, that will become the inclination of your mind. When a thought occurs to you, try to choose whether or not to follow it. Most of the time we're at the mercy of whatever happens, whatever subject happens to present itself to us. We're not so much thinking as being thought. We have to learn to make choices. So, I thought we could do that now. We're going to have five minutes time of doing nothing. Just doing nothing. And when I say do nothing, uh, I also mean don't meditate. Don't close your eyes and do the mindfulness of breathing. Because then you're, I don't know, we're so used to doing things that we think, oh, good, bit of free time, I'll meditate. But don't even meditate. We're just going to do absolutely nothing for five minutes. Okay, I think that was about five minutes. One of the things I say at the beginning of the book is that um, the book is about uh, thinking in a way. Reflecting is to think, to reflect is to think. And it's about thinking as a spiritual practice, which is not something we often associate with Buddhism, the Dharma. And in fact, um, some of the few books I have read over the years, uh, meditation books, mainly, but not always meditation books. There, there seems to be, um, uh, they seem to have a downer on thinking, as if thinking is somehow a bad thing. Buddhists don't think. In fact, uh, a really great thinker, uh, Camille Paglia, um, I remember reading her saying that uh, when she was at university, she began to become interested in Buddhism, uh, but then she was put off because she was told that thinking's not good. And she's... I mean, Kavanagh Pagli was almost, um, she thinks and thinks and thinks, so she got the hell out of there. You know, she just wasn't interested if you can't think as a Buddhist, which is a great shame, I think. Um, and I think that the technique that you mentioned, uh, the, the noting technique, is, is uh, very good for meditation when you try not to think. Um, but there are times when it's good not to think, but there are also times when it, I think it's good to think. And I also think that uh, I also think that um, the uh, the practice of meditation for many of us it would really help us to practice our meditation more effectively if we also gave ourselves time to reflect. Because I think what often happens is we're busy people. We do a lot, don't we? Our lives are quite full, and then we sit down to meditate for say half an hour. And there's a whole, whole load of unprocessed experience that we've had that needs to be processed, as we say. It needs to be thought through, reflected on. Things have happened in the last 20 hours, which I need to have a bit of time to sort through and think, think about, think through, reflect on. But instead of doing that, I try to think of nothing. I try to maybe do the mindfulness of breathing or the metta bhavna or some other meditation practice where thinking just gets in the way of the meditation. But of course, I also need to think. So what happens is if I don't give myself time to think, there's always a struggle in the meditation. I'm trying to just be with the breath, let's say, but my mind won't let me because it's saying, no, 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 you've got to think about this. You really have to think this through. Something's happened and you need to think about it. What does it mean? But anyway, that's my experience. So my experience of meditation has got much better 
since I gave myself time to think, when I just sat down and usually I sit in an armchair, I just look out the window and I thought, right, for the next so many, so much time, I mean, you might be a bit uh, shocked at how much time I can sit and look out the window. Uh, I was doing a reflection seminar a few months ago um, and I said, you need to spend time, you know, sometime every day thinking and uh, a woman said, oh, so how much time do you spend? I said, I said about three hours. And she went, what? Three hours a day? I said, yeah, if I can. I can't always manage that, you know, because I'm quite busy as well. But if I can, <coughs> three hours. The reason for that is that um, it takes about half an hour to an hour for my mind to settle down. I have a similar experience to yours. You know, I sit down and just loads of stuff's going on. And it takes a while for my mind just to settle down and become content. And then it's out of the contentment that I really begin to reflect on things in a more satisfactory way. Um, Shall we do another little thing? Are you into doing something else? I go, we're going to follow on from, I, I hope you quite enjoyed that experience. Maybe you didn't from Diane Marlowe. Hopefully the second one will be more enjoyable. Uh, so the first thing we did was just doing nothing. And, you know, five minutes is totally inadequate, uh, really, for getting into reflection. You need a lot more time than that. But just think, I don't, how many people do you think are here? 50? So we wasted 250 minutes there collectively 250 minutes doing absolutely nothing nothing got done whatsoever which is really great isn't it fantastic 250 minutes maybe we could start up a thing in the movement one of those international things that happen you know where we waste let's waste thousands of hours collectively you know just sit around and no meditating no redecorating buddhist centers or anything like that just do nothing for hours and hours on end. I'm sure it would have a really, really good effect on the world, actually, if we did that. Fantastic effect. We should go into Market Street, shouldn't we, and just sit around and do nothing. <laughs> and just um, loads of us, so that, so, we, so that people... We're getting in the way of people. They're trying to do their shopping, and we're just sitting there going, no, oh, we're just doing nothing, you know, and they can't get through us. Anyway, that's just an idea that came to me. Maybe we shouldn't do that. But the next thing, after doing nothing for some time, you just had a very tiny taste of it there. Of course, you might do nothing quite a lot in your lives. I hope that is the case. And uh, if you want to really get into the mood of doing nothing, I would highly recommend a book called How to Be Free by Tom Hodgkinson, which is all about the freedom of doing absolutely nothing. It's a really wonderful book. Better than this first one, which is How to Be Idle, which is good, but not as good as How to Be Free. Um, so following on from that doing nothing exercise, the next thing to do is learn to choose. Um, as you sit there, you'll have thoughts. And uh, what I'd like you to do is just uh, see if you can just notice the thoughts as they arise, as they will. Just notice the thought as it arises. And then see if you can make a choice as to whether to go along with that thought and have the next thought that comes logically from that and then the next one. You know, for instance... You might be sitting here feeling very slightly hungry and you think, I'll nip into Sainsbury's on the way home. And then that leads you to, ah, oh, when I'm in Sainsbury's, by the way, I must, uh, there's something I needed to get. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right, we've run out of soy sauce, I must get. You know how thoughts just go on from, so when the thought arises, see if you can make a choice 
whether to follow it or not. See if you can choose whether to go along with it or whether to just drop it, just let it go. Okay, Because that is essential for being able to reflect, just watching a thought or noticing a thought arising and then choosing whether to go along with it. So we'll do another few minutes of that. Although um, there's another side to this, uh, I quote uh, a French, little-known French philosopher, Gabriel Marcel, in the book. Who uh, there's a lovely section in one of his uh, lectures where he talks about uh, reflection, and he says that reflection is always personal, um, and it's uh, no one else can reflect for you. No one can else do the reflection for you. And so you're, there you are in your own life, trapped, as it were. There's you trapped in your own life. And so it has to be personal in a way. Perhaps as you reflect more and more and more, you sort of move outwards from oneself to the rest of the world. I don't know if that may or may not happen. But maybe don't worry too much about it being very self-referential, as you put it. And in our movement, self-referential is a slightly pejorative term, isn't it? Um, but I don't think it necessarily mean, has to mean that. It could just mean that, um, uh, well, again, as I say in the book, uh, being alive is a bit of a puzzle, isn't it? Here we are. Isn't it strange? Um, I mentioned in the book, there's a, uh, I, my earliest memory is when I was five years old. Um, it was my fifth birthday, in fact. And... Uh, we had, a bung- we had a bungalow and my parents must have invited all my friends along and we had jelly and cake and Smarties and party games and, you know, going crazy. And then I went to the toilet and closed the door and it was a very strange experience. I closed the door and suddenly it was fairly quiet. You know, not completely quiet, but fairly quiet. And suddenly I was alone. And that was my first moment of self-consciousness. It was like I was in there fully engaged in, you know, being the party and then I went into the toilet closed the door and suddenly I had this thought oh this is me I am me it was a really strange experience it was um, it was very slightly scary but it was also very exhilarating Uh, and at the same time strangely enough there was a sense of serenity to it I still remember that this sense of serene kind of peace being there in the toilet and I may even said I may have even I can't quite remember now but I may even have said to myself this is me and that is what makes reflection possible Um, reflection is a very uh, comes from the Latin reflectere which means to uh, flect is to bend and re is back so reflection means to bend back in itself you could say and so self-awareness and mindfulness is that very thing isn't it you're sort of being aware not just of things around you but you're aware of being aware and that's what makes reflection possible you're bringing thought into that uh, process and um, I remember another thing that happened when I was very small I one thing that really puzzled me is that why am I me and not you why am I me? 
why am I here looking out at you lot? Why aren't I there looking out at somebody else here? Why am I me and not you? That, that kept me busy for hours and hours, you know, thinking, why am I me and not you? How strange. How strange to be me and not you. And it's that kind of thing, I think, that makes reflection possible. Plato famously said it, didn't it, that um, reflection comes from a sense of wonder. And uh, that always gives me a sense of wonder, that, that thought, why am I me? What a strange thing to be me. How strange. Um, so one of the things, I, one of the things I, I'm at pains to point out in the book is that I don't think reflection is um, for intellectuals only. I don't think it's something that only really intellectual people and philosophers do. In fact, some intellectual people hardly reflect at all, I think. Um, some do and some don't. Uh, but reflection, I think, is a human thing. It's a human quality. It's something that happens naturally. Uh, maybe around the, from the age of five, when you realise that you are a separate agent, a separate human being, which is a strange thing to come to terms with I think and then once you've got that feeling of separateness then there are problems problems arise don't they um, you do something you have some kind of interaction with a few people and uh, it doesn't go very well uh, or maybe um, you realise that you haven't behaved very well how, how often does that happen you know you think oh I didn't do that very well and then uh, you think, well, I really must try and change that. Well, that's only possible because of reflection, isn't it? You've reflected on something that happened to you. Gabriel Marcel says that reflection comes from um, a break in the daily chain of habit. Something happens which causes a break in that daily chain of habit. You know, things that just go on and on and on, like sort of naturally and flowing. And then something happens and there's a break and it causes a slight shock in your being. And it causes you to think about yourself and reflect and think, well, why did I do that? And how can I stop doing that? How can I stop being like this with people? Or how can I begin to be like this with people? And then you find that you can't make it happen. You know, I want to be kinder. I want to be um, more sociable with people. It's one of the things I'm trying to do at the moment, be more sociable with people. I had this idea about six months ago, I need to be more sociable, I need to go out and be with people and have dinner parties and uh, stuff like that. I haven't done anything. Six months later, I still haven't done anything at all. How come? I don't know. I don't know. It was a definite decision, but I've done nothing. And so that gives me quite a lot to reflect on. I think, wow, that's very interesting, isn't it? I decided six months ago, I need to do this. And then I've done nothing. And I find it, um, it can be very, very interesting. You know, why did I break a promise? I don't mean that's a promise. It's a kind of promise to myself. But, you know, sometimes we break promises, don't we? We, uh, we say to someone we love them and we'll be with them for the rest of our lives. We get married. We make that promise. And then five years later, we break it. How come? How come we broke that promise? What happened in the meantime? A lot to reflect on, I think. Uh, we said we'd have tea, didn't we, at what time? Eight o'clock? Let's just round up with um, uh, a little bit more feedback on that exercise because I got into something there, didn't I, from your thing, without getting proper feedback. Any other feedback from the choosing to think or not to think exercise?
think there is uh, there's a writer on philosophy called uh, Pierre Addo who uh, writes about the ancient philosophies, the Greeks and the Romans, and he's, he talks about the uh, the art of dialoguing. And, uh, you know, the platonic dialogue where Socrates gets into a dialogue with someone and he forces them to realise they haven't really thought about it at all kind of idea. But he says that dialogue was uh, a spiritual practice for them. And uh, he talks about outer dialogue and inner dialogue, which I found very interesting. And what he says is that basically reflection is a dialogue. It's an inner dialogue going on. So you have a thought and then you have a think about that thought and you almost say something to that thought. You might ask it a question. And then it has to answer. Well, it, it, you're answering, aren't you? So you're, you're asking yourself a question and then you're coming up with an answer. And then, of course, that will probably bring out another question from you. So having a kind of inner conversation, I think, is very, very um, useful for reflection. Yeah. Inner, converse, uh, inner conversing, you could say. Yeah. But we better stop and have a cup of tea, haven't we? So um, just following on from... Uh, what Richard was saying towards the end of uh, the first half. Um, the, uh, which chapter is it? The third or the fourth chapter? Just gonna, chapter three, dwelling on a topic um, where I go into learning the skill of just staying with one topic. Because um, I expect you've had the situation where you think, must think about something. So you start thinking about it and two minutes later you're thinking about something else, aren't you? How did I get there? And um, so uh, I go into that in this chapter, learning how to reflect on one topic. And I, I suggest a number of different ways of going about it. Um, one is talking to yourself, this inner dialogue idea, having an idea and then asking a question about it and trying to answer that question. So inner dialogue is one way of going about it. Um, and then another is writing, reflective writing. One of the ways I learned how to think um, in a very directed way, in my teacher, Sangrakshita, somebody once asked him how they could learn to think, and he said, well, one thing you could do is write about a topic every day for half an hour, the same topic. So I did that. I, w- I went on a long, solitary retreat, and for two months I sat down every day to write about this same topic. It was a very, very interesting thing to do. Um, it really forces you to think because the first half hour, of course, you write about everything you already know. Then the second time you do it, there's, you've run out of things that you already know. So now you have to start writing about things that you don't know yet. It's a very, very difficult but very good thing to do. So it's reflective writing. Um, and then there's... Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, every day for two months. I had to go out and buy some more um, paper after a while. Then there's ref- thinking with your legs, as I've called it, which is uh, the time-honoured way of going for a walk and thinking something through that way. Uh, but then there's also reflecting with others, which is very, very interesting. We often think of reflection as a solitary activity, and I've written about it more or less as if it is. But there is the idea of reflecting with others, which I've been experimenting with in the past six to nine months where I sit down with another person and we choose a topic and we reflect together on the topic. You can either do it in a dialoguing kind of way or you can just have one person as the witness, one person listening, and you just reflect on the topic, reflect out loud. It's a very good way of doing it because it really keeps you to the topic. You know, you start talking and then... um, 
uh, if you go off the topic, the person, the person listening to you notices and uh, say, uh, where are you going now? Oh, yeah, yeah, coming back. So that's a very good way of doing it. I've written a little something about that. But then towards the end of the chapter, uh, there's a section that I've called The Pleasure of Reflection. So this is what I'm going to read you. Recently, I reflected on how I reflect. I realised as I was writing this book that I didn't know how I did it. So I spent some time observing myself, and this is what I discovered. First, I sit down and allow my being to settle. I compose myself. I become aware of my body and its various sensations, because I think best when the whole of myself is included. I look down at my feet. I feel the contact of my feet on the floor. I feel my stomach rise and fall with the breath. I need time. An open expanse of time spreading out ahead of me so that I don't feel rushed. To rush is to constrain. And I need to feel that I have time for my mind to expand. Time in which I can unfurl and explore. There is a delicious pleasure in idleness, in not doing anything useful, in playing. Then I just wait. At first there, be no, there may be no thoughts at all. If I have a problem that I've been trying to solve, I'll remind myself of it. I'll notice the feeling the problem evokes in me. Interest, perplexity, discomfort, annoyance, insecurity. Or perhaps I don't have a problem or a question to answer. Perhaps I just want to know a subject better. Then it's as if I'm standing outside a walled garden that I want to enter. To see, feel and smell the plants, trees, grass and earth. Or it's as if I'm looking at an intricate mechanism like a watch and I want to prise the back off and see how it works. This kind of reflecting has no function or use. No immediate use anyway. I'm thinking for the simple pleasure of thinking, of considering something, of getting to know the world I inhabit better. Sometimes there is no particular topic I want to think about, and so I just wait and see what presents itself to me. There is usually something sitting just below my conscious mind that needs attending to, some unresolved issue or source of unhappiness that just needs a little gentle coaxing into consciousness. This leads me to another point. Something that surprised me when I noticed it. I don't actually think in the sense that I do something. I can't make thinking happen. Instead, I allow thoughts to arise. I bring a subject to mind and then I wait. Perhaps the majority of time, my mind is empty. I'm just waiting for thoughts to appear. Thoughts arise or they don't. There's a sense of letting thoughts come to me rather than my having thoughts or bringing them into existence. Sometimes stray, random thoughts appear 
I remember that I have to phone someone or that we've run out of cornflakes. I might write these down to remind myself to see to them later. And this frees my mind to continue my reflection. However, when a thought occurs to me that seems worth following, I then exert a gentle effort to stay with it. Just the right amount of effort needed to dwell on that thought to see where it might lead me. I don't need to do any more than that. It's a little like being in a boat, being taken along with the current. I don't need to row. I just need to adjust the rudder, gently changing direction every now and then, bringing myself back to the topic. After a while, an idea may come to me that seems new and significant, something I've never thought before and can't remember reading or hearing from anyone else. This new thought is always accompanied by a rush of excitement and pleasure. I think it may be a similar to experience to the creative process of the poet, composer or painter, although I'm not a creative artist, so I can't be sure about that. Certainly the experiences of giving birth to something new and fresh. At times like this, it feels as if I'm learning something, but not in the sense of adding to my stock of information. It's more that I'm seeing the world in a new way, and to do that, I've had to become a different person. The pleasure I get from reflection is not the lazy kind of pleasure easily obtained, such as I might get from watching a DVD or sitting in the sun. It's the kind of pleasure you get when you are learning a new skill, and you can suddenly do something you couldn't do before. That feeling of having stretched yourself, gone beyond your normal boundaries. Marilyn Robinson, I must say here that I quote uh, the, the novelist Marilyn Robinson earlier, so the reader will know who I'm referring to. Um, Marilyn Robinson puts it very well when she has John Ames say, John Ames is a character in her novel. I have wandered to the limits of my understanding any number of times, and I've scared myself too, a good many times, leaving all landmarks behind me, or so it seemed. And it has been among the true pleasures of my life. Night and light, silence and difficulty. It seemed to me always rigorous and good. That is such a good quote, isn't it? I'll just read that again, I think. I've wandered to the limits of my understanding any number of times, and I've scared myself too a good many times, leaving all landmarks behind me, or so it seemed. And it has been among the true pleasures of my life, night and light, silence and difficulty. It seemed to me always rigorous and good. Great. Uh, so what should we do now? What we t- oh, 10-2... I think maybe it's time to move on to the next bit uh, in the book, which is contemplation. Uh, Most of the book is about reflection. Uh, Reflection is what I call the second level of wisdom, chinta, uh, chinta maya panya. Chinta in the Pali English dictionary literally means thought. But the next level, bhavana, 
Mayapanya. Bhavana means to bring into existence, usually understood to be meditation, but it doesn't have to be meditation. Um, reflection, I think of as being quite discursive, thinking something through, maybe even analysing something, but not always analytical, but has that kind of idea around it. Uh, contemplation uh, comes from the Latin uh, contemple or contemplus. And apparently it comes from an idea from ancient Greece where the augurs, I think they're soothsayers, aren't they? The priests, they had an open space where they used to receive messages from the gods. And the open space was the contemplus. So I really like that idea because it seems to me that when we move from reflection to contemplation, we move into an open space, a space with no words, no arguments, no thoughts. And we just allow an idea, or it might even be just a word, to percolate through down to the rest of our being. And one of the things that I say in the book is that um, the three levels of wisdom do come in an order. First of all, you have to listen to the wise, really listen. Open yourself up to those who know better are wise, wiser than we are. Then the second level is to really think it all through for yourself and in that way you engage your mental faculty in the teachings and then and you make, you make them your own. You argue against them perhaps. Um, some people learn by opposition, don't they? Do you ever been in a class where somebody always opposes something the teacher's saying? They've always got an argument against it and that's how people learn. And it's a very good thing to do, I think, to, um, to uh, test something, test a teaching. Does it really stand up to rigorous argument? So there's a certain amount of that that happens in the second level of uh, wisdom. But by the third level, we've done that. We've argued it. We've thought of it from every angle. We've asked if it's true. We've seen if it uh, applies in every situation. We've really thought about it and I think there are times when you feel you've come to the end of your thinking about something it's like well I've thought enough about that topic now but one of the things I'm interested in at the moment my current interest is I know a lot about Buddhism I really do know a lot about the Dharma Uh, but I don't live it as well as I know it if you know what I mean you know I can talk for hours about the Dharma Uh, No problem. I've got a fund of information I can just come out with. But I don't live exactly as I speak. It's as if my my understanding runs ahead of my actual life. And there's a disjunction. I was on a meditation retreat recently where uh, we were meditating on impermanence and no self and so on. And I was thinking, there is no self. Yeah, I know, I know. There is no self. I'm completely convinced there's no self. I've been practicing for 35 years. I've been trying to find a self for 35 years, and there definitely isn't one. I'm completely convinced about that. But I'm still selfish. So that's strange, isn't it? I'm completely convinced of no self, but I act as if there is one. So what I'm interested in at the moment is trying to bring these two together to really understand no self really understand and how does that happen 
So uh, another thing I'm interested in is the uh, relationship between concepts and reality. In the introduction to the book, I really go into this, the relationship between concepts and reality, and there is a relationship between them, a meaningful relationship between concepts and reality. Some people think there is no relationship, they don't meet at all, that concepts are, they're just words, just words, reality is beyond words. Reality is beyond words, but what do we mean by beyond? Beyond can mean two different things. It can mean beyond in the sense of leaving behind, so reality has left words behind, has got nothing to do with them, and therefore words have nothing to do with reality, which means that we can say nothing about reality, nothing meaningful, or uh, reality is beyond words in the sense of more than but including words more than but including and I use the analogy of um, uh, getting lost in the countryside you go for a walk in the countryside and you're lost there's a farmer you go to the farmer you ask him and he says ah yeah I'm trying to find uh, the village uh, Rishworth he says ah Rishworth oh yeah you see over that hill there and over the next one and then through the wood and then out of the wood you come straight into Rishworth that's it and beyond Beyond the wood is Rishworth. So beyond in that sense, you may have to leave the wood behind to get into Rishworth. You can't be in Rishworth and the wood at the same time. They don't go. So beyond in that sense means beyond in the sense of leaving behind. But then he's a friendly farmer, gregarious, starts chatting to you. So you ask him, "Ah, how far does your land reach? And he says, ah, we see beyond that hill over there and that river. And then see that telegraph pole? My land just goes just beyond there. And now, when he says beyond, he means something different. He means beyond in the sense of further than, but including. Yeah? And uh, I think that uh, wisdom, the wisdom of reality, is beyond words in the, sen- in the second sense. It's more than, but includes them. And that allows us to speak, say something about reality. Yeah? When we say something about reality, that doesn't encompass the whole of reality, but there is some kind of relationship. So one of the things I'm interested in at the moment is how do we get from our sometimes very, very good understanding of Buddhism and the realities that Buddhism is pointing to, very good understanding sometimes, how do we get from that to really living it? And I think that's where the third level of wisdom comes in, bhavana. This is where you take something that you've thought about, you've discussed, you've argued, you've read about for many, many years, and you stop thinking now. It's a little bit like being with a friend and you've had a really good conversation. It's been going on for hours. You're sitting near your back garden and you're talking for hours and then you come to the end of your conversation and you quieten down and you sit in companionable silence. You just sit there with your friend And it's not an awkward silence, it's a companionable silence. And I think this is where uh, contemplation comes in, where we take some idea, some teaching, some truth, say impermanent, it's all compounded things are impermanent. This is something that we can think a lot about, isn't it? Are all things impermanent? Is the sky impermanent? Is the universe impermanent? space impermanent you can really think it all through but there comes a point when 
it's time to stop thinking about it and really understand it. And then you just take this phrase, all compounded things are impermanent, or you might even shorten it to impermanence. You might even change, uh, shorten that to change. Just that simple word change. Or for some people it may not even be a word or a phrase. It may be, it may be an image. Uh, I was doing one reflection workshop and we were reflecting on impermanence. And she said that the way she reflects on impermanence is she remembers walking across a stream and she put her foot on a rock. And as she put her foot on the rock, she noticed the, the water just rushing past it. And that for her was like change, impermanence. And that's what she reflects on, just that image of water going round the rock. So you just take an image like that or a word, impermanence. All things are impermanence. Or you might even make it very personal. I'm impermanent. What I thought. I'm impermanent. And you know that's true, don't you? You know you're impermanent. You know you're getting older and you know you're going to die. You know that. But do we act as if that were really the case? And if we went to the doctors tomorrow and they said, oh, we've done the tests and actually you're going to die. You're going to die in three months. It would be really shocking, wouldn't it? Really shocking. Which shows that we haven't really quite come to terms with it. I was um, doing a retreat in Germany recently and we were... Uh, reflecting on uh, a chapter on impermanent well uh, actually it was old age and decay from the Dharmapada and um, I went off for a walk in the woods <coughs> and every now and then I stopped and I looked around and it was as if I really believed it just for a second or two I am impermanent and the way it, it, it appeared to me was I was looking at this view of the trees and I thought one day I won't be looking at trees again. There'll be a time when I won't be here to do that. It got a little bit frightening, and I just, but I wanted it. You know, I wanted this experience. I kept doing it, and then, and then I have to say that I'm um, when I do a good teaching session, and I had done a good teaching session earlier. Um, this is, shows how egotistical I actually am. That when I do a good teaching session, I rerun it later. Oh, yeah, and I said that, didn't I? And everyone laughed. Ha, 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 ha. That's a great joke, wasn't it? So spontaneous. And then I gave this really good bit of wisdom teaching, and everyone went, whoa, yeah. That was a great, wasn't it? And I rerun them like that when I do a really good teaching session. And uh, in, even I, I go a bit further, and oh, what I could have said was this. Oh, that would have been so good if I'd have said that. And I really... It goes on for sometimes days, actually. So... <laughs> It's one of the downsides of teaching. When you have a good session, it just really, you you start um, grandiloquizing yourself, you know. And uh, I found myself doing this. But in the midst of it, uh, it was a funny thing because I was fantasizing about a really good teaching session I could do. And as I was fantasizing about that, it suddenly turned into something really quite a strong experience for me. And it was like this. I was just walking along and thinking about what I could have said next in this teaching session. And what I could have done was said, just imagine that uh, you go to the doctor and they say, you know, I, we've just done the test and you've, you're going to die. You're going to die. You've got just a number of months. And then I thought, well, actually, 
it's like that for us anyway, isn't it? Um, we don't need to go to the doctor. We are going to die. So just imagine, and then I just imagined, I just imagined this happening. Suddenly I wasn't in this fantasy anymore. I was actually imagining somebody saying to me, Ratnaguna, do you know you're going to die? And suddenly it's very real. And I said, um, sorry about this, but I'll, oh shit. <laughs> so that was the word. Oh shit. That was my response to, I really am going to die. And I said, oh, um, when? Do we know when? And this other person, who turned out to be a woman, I don't know why, she said, well, we don't know when. It could be any time. It could be this afternoon. Or it could be in 30 years. But we do know now that you're going to die. And, of course, that's the situation we know we're in. But it suddenly became very, very real to me, as if, oh, my goodness, that is really going to happen. And this is a bit more like contemplation, I think, although it was a bit of a busy, you know, pfft. It suddenly became very still and very quiet in the wood and very serious, actually. It's a very serious kind of frightening, sobering experience. I am going to die. And um, as I say in the book, towards the end, uh, you only reflect on the things that matter to you. You never reflect on things you don't care about. You might try, you might think, I better reflect on this. And then you don't because you don't care. So you only really reflect on things that matter to you. And my ageing process matters to me. Um, it's pretty obvious to me. I know people keep saying, oh, Ratnaguni, you still look like you're 25. But to me, I don't. To me, I feel and look like I'm 57. And uh, 57. It's frightening, isn't it? Another three years and I'll be 60. But grandparents are 60. And so it's like, um, this is what I want now. This is what I really want. I really want to try to understand because it's getting a bit urgent, isn't it? It's getting urgent now. I'm getting older. Maybe I've got 20 years, maybe, hopefully. But when I look 35 years of Buddhist practice, I've only got so far now. How long have I got? And I've really got to try and make it count and this is where I think uh, contemplation comes in, where you just take something that you know very, very well already, but you don't know it deeply enough. You don't know it well enough yet. And you take that very familiar idea and you allow it to affect you. You really allow it to go a bit deeper inside you. And uh, I don't really know how that works I don't really know how to do it. The only way I know is to just become as concentrated as I can, as absorbed as I can, and then just hold the idea and again wait and see what happens. So we're going to do that now. We're going to do a threefold puja for those who want to. Uh, and then we're just going to uh, reflect on something um, We'll, we'll find out when we get there what we're going to reflect on. <clears throat>